This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and we are very happy to bring you the first episode of 2019. We're excited to roll out a bunch of new interviews in the coming weeks. We have a top 10 player in the world that's confirmed to join us soon, along with a bunch of other interviews that we have in the bank, along with a few mailbag episodes where we will answer questions directly from you. And to kick things off, we have John Graham, one of the most interesting guys in golf and widely renowned as one of the best putting coaches in the world, uh, coach to many PGA Tour players. And maybe the, the biggest compliment that I can give him is he always stops me from skimming on Twitter meaning I'll be scrolling through my feed. And as soon as I see a John Graham tweet, I stop and I read it carefully as his ideas are always well thought out and considered the way that he approaches all the complex problem solving that's involved in coaching golf is something that we admire a lot at Altus. And it's really made him an influential voice in the golf world. If you're not already familiar with John, I assure you that you'll want to follow him and learn more after hearing this conversation between Cameron and John. Golf instruction always seems to be especially prone to an ebb and flow of fads where you have an idea that comes out and has some success. And then a a lot of people kind of jump to it. We call it drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So golf needs guys like John who are critical thinkers. He is very much resistant towards the influence of others or his own assumptions and, and biases. And instead of just accepting ideas at the face value, does a, an amazing job at raising the important questions about why something may or may not work. And for that reason, we're really excited to have him on for a, a conversation that starts with a bit about his background. And then in the second half of the conversation goes really deeply into some important putting topics, his preferences, you know, how we develop, you know, the perceptual skills and green reading skills, among many other important ideas around putting. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Cameron McCormick and John Graham. I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in their rearview mirror, and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. Now, a quick Google search of my guest today, John Graham, reveals two, I guess, poignant search results. The first is a Scottish amateur golfer who had three top tens in the Open Championship. However, this John Graham was born in 1877, so clearly that's not my guest. But rather, the most prominent search result is John Graham, the world-renowned golf coach, clients on the PGA, LPGA, European Tour, and Web.com Tour. He's known as a putting specialist. As far as I'm concerned, he's a specialist of all things related to uh, excellence in golf. Uh, He's advisor to some of the best player team networks in the game offering the most sound of critical thinking, which anyone who spends time in person or online could probably attest to. So there's a great deal that we could probably talk about, John. Mm -hmm. But first and foremost, the ground that I wanted to cover is, what would you be if you weren't a golf coach? Gosh, I was just having this conversation with John Hardesty in the car. It was one of the phone calls I just got. My original education was in finance, accounting. I actually worked as an accountant for a while at a bank called Fleet Bank, and I was an auditor. I've always been really good with math and numbers and organizing things of that nature. So it was easy to do. It was uh, 
fairly profitable. I just didn't enjoy it. I've always been kind of a why person, and numbers don't have too much why involved in them. They're very black and white, very easy to, to work with. But the, the puzzle nature of putting in specific is how I turned into that really kind of led me in that direction. I mean, as a kid, like I'm sure most golf professionals, I wanted to play, but I didn't want to play golf. I was a bowler as a kid. Bowled in college, have had perfect scores. It was that, that particular game appealed to me because I had a specific perfect ending goal. If I do everything right, I get 12 strikes, I get 300, it's as good as it can get. So I latched onto that very early on as a young age and bowled all the way through high school, college, and then got into golf after that. So golf was just something that I thought was more difficult and more fair than bowling. Had a better puzzle aspect to it, and I got into playing it, got good fairly quickly. It wasn't that difficult in my mind. And then uh, learned pretty quickly that I couldn't compete the way I needed to compete because of some inner beliefs of I would hit this big, huge right shot off the tee every once in a while, and I, I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when it was coming, so my whole day was prepared around how do I defend against this shot that was coming, and then got into the club pro side, and I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> as a club pro, I just, I remember the first big interview I had as a, for a head pro job, the, uh, it was at the course I was an assistant at, and I went in front of the board, and one of the questions that I should have been prepared for was, what would you change when you got here, if you became head pro? I rattled off 15 everything. everything. <laughs> like the dump is in the wrong place. This pavement needs to be fixed. Like all of these types of things. And I got done with the interview in the car thinking about how I went. I'm like, oh gosh, maybe I shouldn't have said all that kind of stuff. So I, I knew my nature of speaking my mind was going to be dangerous in that environment. I wasn't political enough to, to manage it. On the golf instruction side, I seem to have figured out a little better voice of how to figure out when to say and what to say. It's a continual learning experience for sure, but uh, I think the whole speaking my mind thing also didn't work very well on the corporate end. When people would come to me with problems, I'd be like, well, this is obvious. It's this stupid thing right here. I would I would speak in a manner that maybe wasn't as... Are you kidding me? How can you not see that's the answer? Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did you see golf as more fair than bowling? Well... Are you, are you an experienced bowler? Have you done a lot of it? Very little. Very little. Okay, well then... Enough to not, uh, not use the, um, the bumpers. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, bowling has a, has a very particular goal. If you're right-handed, you're trying to hit it between the one and three pins, and if you do that at the right angle, the ball hits the one, three, and five, and nine, and the pins knock down all the rest. So the ball only hits four pins. The other pins are designed to knock off the others. Well, when you've got one round object hitting four other round objects, the outcomes can be very randomized and bowling has a whole bunch of that where sometimes you think you do it right and only nine fall down and then the person you're bowling against does it wrong and they all fall down there's no real fair predictability that's the problem with my bowling game isn't it (laughs) (laughs) so with with golf at the very least it seemed like more often than not a good shot was rewarded now certainly you could hit the flag stick and get punished or a sprinkler head but if you hit a bad shot you get a bad result bowling sometimes you can make a bad shot and get a good result so it just seemed more fair to me that way. And most of the time, flat surface, touching a sphere, touching a bowl, therefore. And it's yeah. not really flat either. <laughs> right on. <laughs> <laughs> and there's oil patterns that can benefit left-handers versus right-handers. Depending on how much a person curves it, they can have a benefit on a particular oil pattern than not. Mm. So there's, there's more to it than just what most people think if they haven't done it at a high level. As I'm sure is true of all sports, at a higher level, it, the game's a very different game than what most people think it is. Yeah, interesting. Tell us something that most don't know about you. Hmm. Probably most don't know that I'm uh, uh, an introvert. I'm generally not someone who likes to go out and uh, interact with large groups of people or, or speak to large groups of people. I, I can do it. 
uh, but and you've I done the world over. I, I, well, it's something I had to seek out. I had something I had to go train. Uh, I remember specifically the day I chose to do it was at my first GPTP PGA seminar. And there was a guy, uh, he was a lawyer, I think his last name was Mark Eichelberg or something close to that. And he was an excellent speaker. As a trial lawyer, uh, had a, a deep voice and it echoed and very, very well. I knew I didn't like to talk, and I went up to him and I said, you know, I, I need to learn how to talk in front of people better. How do I do it? And he kind of gave me some ideas, and I just started practicing. So I would think most people wouldn't expect to know that I'm not really a, uh, an outwardly enthusiastic person. Indeed, indeed. And what were your interests in school growing up? On the academic side? Yeah. Uh, it was math, math and science. Uh, they still are, to be fair. I, I'm, uh, as far as puzzles go, like space and... The nature of the universe, those are giant ones. I'm still intrigued by them. And now I kind of live through my son. That's his passion. He's a, he wants to be a theoretical physicist. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. How do you lead cultivating that desire or that interest in your son's life? <laughs> well, as, as with all parents, I'm sure I've, I've taken my tendencies to question everything. So I was always a hands-up person, even in high school, college. Like, I had to go to class. I was not somebody who could read it out of a book and, and learn it. I had to attend the lecture. I had to hear it. I had to write it my own words. And once I did that, I owned it. But because of that nature, because I was in the class, if he said or he, she said something that I didn't either agree with or didn't understand, my hand immediately. And I did it in, in golf conferences. I did it. And everything that I did was, what about this? What about this? What about this? It was just my nature. So now, as a parent, having brought that to my children, now everything I say well, he's, what about this? What about this? He's kind of worked through that same uh, logical progress of, okay, this is the information I have. This is the information that I'm now adding to that. How do I simulate it? How does it fit in or doesn't it? And then work through that. So he's, my, my oldest son is very similar to myself in that way. He thinks very, very logistically and step by step. Where did that skill come from? Was that mom and dad saying, if yeah. you're struggling, raise yeah, your that hand? that was my mother. Yeah. 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 My mother was uh, a hardcore devil's advocate player. Yeah. Uh, and I am a huge <laughs> contrary and counterfactual. So, yeah, and I mean it was it caused massive troubles early on in social life of because uh, I, I would never let on what I actually believed. I would just take whatever argument was given and take the opposite side just for fun. <laughs> um, and I would I would and uh, me and Chris Como would do this purposely to each other. We would take the opposite side of something we believed in to see how well we could defend or attack this, the side that we believed mm -hmm. in. So um, that, and that comes from my mother, no question. She put that in all of us, yeah. all, all, our whole family's that way. Yeah, so the, the answer to the question, you have this sometimes formulated answer, predicting what might come out when I asked you, what would you be if you weren't involved in the golf, <laughs> would be a trial lawyer. <laughs> I, I, I would probably have fun with that. I yeah. would enjoy that piece. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So on this journey towards developing your expertise, your, and I know that you don't start out with an, an intent for notoriety, but you earn that along the way, given those that lean on you for advice and guidance, be it players or coaches or otherwise. Has there been any failure or any adversity that sticks out as, while difficult to go through, was foundational in getting you to where you are today? I mean, I, I experience failure on a daily basis when it comes to coaching. And mainly for me, the failures come from language, timing, word choice, things of that nature, trying to figure out not only just how, but when to communicate the right piece of information for the person in front of me. I like my information in a very specific way. And initially, I would speak with the assumption that the person that I was speaking to wanted to hear it the way that I wanted to hear it. 
So I had you know massive failures of communication and understanding of trying to convey an idea that I thought was very, very simplistic in my own mind, speaking it in a way that I would understand it very easily, and then the person not even having a clue what I was talking about. Is there a specific example that comes to mind? Yeah, there's a gentleman named Mark Murphy. He was a, a student of mine when I was a member, or when I was an assistant at Midvale. And uh, we were working through a particular swing thing, and I had uh, given him a very specific piece of information that was regarding uh, how his trail arm should work on the downswing. And I just I couldn't get it across of what I wanted to have happen. And he immediately started shanking every single shot. I mean, over and over. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, I see this problem. It's right there in front of me. I know what the solution is. I've got, at that point, and this is like maybe the second year of teaching that I I only had one verbal solution of how do I make this go away. One play in the playbook, right? (laughs) (laughs) And And my solution just made it worse. Eventually, after you know talking to some other coaches and getting some other ideas, I found a, a better group of words to, to make it work. But that was you know weeks later after I you know destroyed the guy before a two ball that he was playing. <laughs> yeah, and working at the level of the game that you work at right now, the high performance level, there is no room for that. No, no, and I I speak a lot less now than I used to. Um, I used to be quite, I mean, as I'm sure most young coaches are, uh, quite comfortable saying everything that I knew that may have been relevant at that time, but uh, over years of doing it just isn't necessary. Trying to figure out, okay, what is the right thing? What will actually deliver the performance that I want in this environment um, with the least amount of intrusion as possible has been the real trick for me. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. How then do you balance working at that elite level PGA European Tour or uh, LPGA or even Web? We'll talk about the 1% of the 1% that play this game. Balance the need for success, the player to experience ideas, did it this way and the ball yielded the result that I was expecting with working through their own struggles. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because we're not with them all the time. So we need them to be able to, uh, I guess, self-correct. In order for them to self-correct, they they need the necessary information. And sometimes when we're out there, uh, we'll get the look to the side, what the heck went wrong with that one, right? Right. Um, it's a constant, at least for me, it's a constant trial and error. For me, at this point in my career, the figuring out how the person works has become paramount in terms of body language, what uh, facial expressions they make after I've said some sentence of some group of words, what minimal piece of information that they give me that they didn't know they were giving me, trying to figure out what those pieces were, and then using that as a guide to say, okay, well, because of this, then maybe this set of words will work, or this tone will work or this maybe i'll just save that for later nearly all of my visual attention is based on on that piece so i i don't know if i have a a great answer for uh when to jump in when to not jump in when to let them struggle versus when to give them the solution generally especially now i will let them struggle a lot more than i used to Mm -hmm. Uh, i want to see how they try to solve it now I, i generally as a coach i prefer to try to teach them how to solve it ahead of time and then watch the failure start to happen and then see, okay, did they address 
the solution as the manner that I gave it to them, or did they try something else? And did it work or did it not work? I want to see that happen. Because if, if they solve it, uh, it'll mean much more to them than if I give them the solution. They'll be able to own that and transfer that and bring that to, to bear right away. Don't you think that's a very important uh, trait or skill that even recreational golfers need to learn? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Interesting story. This is one of my first experiences with an elite player. We were on the putting green and we were working through some start line station. They were trying to roll the ball through a gate. Is this at an event or in practice? This is at practice. Okay. And I'm standing at the top of the hill and this player is hitting uphill putts toward me. There's a, a chalk line down and a gate and they're just rolling through the, through the gate. And the first putt hits left tee and then left tee, left tee, left tee, like five in a row. It's left tee, left tee, left tee, left tee. And I haven't said a single word yet, just watching to see what adjustment they're about to make. Left tee, left tee, left tee, left tee, left tee, left tee. No change, no adjustment. <laughs> So I, I slowly walk down the hill and I go, okay, it seems that we have a pattern here. There's something going on. <laughs> hit the left tee every once in a while. What have you tried so far to not hit the left tee? Nothing. <laughs> and I go, you haven't, well, no, I've been waiting for you to tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and for me, that was really shocking. I didn't expect that at all. I expected some adaptation to come, but this person had put, enough trust in me right from the get-go that they weren't going to do anything that they wanted to try on their own without getting some approval or some permission or something from me first. And that was, I, I've never seen that again, but that was really interesting to me that uh, even at that level, that still can happen. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. I, I haven't seen it to that extent, but I certainly have seen it. Yeah, I'm looking for players to be the driving force, the active participant in yeah. solving their own problem. Yeah. And for us to be just that GPS coordinate, coordinate saying a little bit more, more to the left, a little right. bit more to the right. Yeah, you, yeah, you get the point. Yeah. Um, how do you define success in coaching? And has it, I guess, even a sub-level question of that, has it shifted over time? Oh, for sure. Um, I used to define success in coaching in, did I make the player better? I would say my more current definition is, have I enabled the player to prepare themselves or self-correct in a better way? So the end goal is to still make them better, but I would more take more pride out of watching somebody fail, fix it, and then move on and, and achieve what they wanted to achieve, given the information that I had given them without having to tell them, okay, here's what to do. They've, they go through that process on their own. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're still supposed to make them better. So success, like making them better is kind of just the given. Uh, how that happens now is the piece that I would say is different than before. Yeah, right on. Indeed, indeed. And it's a big point of separation. I see, correct me if you think I'm wrong, in novice coaches versus those that are what we'll call further along the pathway towards being more advanced, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah maybe, I would say. Yeah, so it would be a good point of differentiation to pursue some point of success that kind of, not adheres, but checks that box. Yeah. Um, how do you think of coaching versus instructing? Are they one of the same in your mind? No. Um, I, I've, I've said this before. Information is not education. And it's, I would say it's similar to instruction is not the same as, as coaching. Um, instructing, I would put in the box of uh, conveying of information. Um, and then coaching would be more on the education side of things. How do we take information and then use it in a manner that is uh, specifically designed to increase performance when it matters most? Mm -hmm. I would certainly say most coaches that go through this cycle of life will start much more as instructors and then kind of work their way toward coaches as uh, as they see that the instruction piece only has a limited success rate. And it certainly isn't required. But then to get beyond that, it's like, okay, well, how do I take this now and has limited move mileage forward? for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you think of what you possess now versus maybe 
five or even 10 years ago, are there a series of coaching superpowers you feel like you have either gathered or strengthened over time that are necessary that may not but may not hit the radar of the X's and O's of I know how to work the tools and technology, but yet they're more of like a hidden curriculum of being a masterful at, at coaching full swing at coaching any performance in golf. Well, certainly on the on the putting side of things, the coaching piece can only begin after the entire puzzle has a you've been able to look at all the pieces of it. Instructing putting stroke or green reading or those things, those things are easily instructable. Uh, the coaching piece requires you to have an information as to how all those pieces are put together for that particular person that's standing in front of you. And in, for me, until I see all of those pieces as a group, I can't do any of the coaching yet. I doesn't do me any good to instruct a stroke if I don't know how to read or the other pieces fit together in this whole solution piece. So it's so if a coach was supposed to fill up the bucket of knowledge on the pieces of the skill, yeah, how best would they go about that if they're starting from zero? Um. I would certainly, on the, on the putting side of things, yes. um, hmm. <laughs> what would they do first? Hmm. If, you were, if you were building a university class, yeah. 101, 102, 103, what are those, 104, those classes would be <laughs> required reading is. Gosh, that's, ways a, to go that's an incredibly good question. Um, God, I really have to think about that. How would I, how would I set that up? Uh, I, I would think the first part would have to be some type of class into human behavior and body language and nonverbal cues and kind of learning the individual in front of you. Uh, until, until you can do that part, the rest of it doesn't really matter because they're only going to take it the way that they can take it. So I think that would probably have to come first. Then, the, which, is, which would I do? For, I would probably do green reading type things first. Speed is something I'm still trying to figure out, how to teach it better, how to coach it better, how to get people to learn it and transfer it better. So that would be a master's and doctorate level class that still is ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the stroke part for me, I, I haven't had too much difficulty with. So I would probably put that you know, kind of toward the end as uh, not overly challenging, not overly difficult. Uh, probably get kind of thrown in with something else, mm -hmm. with technology and stroke, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, that most of what we read and um, is discussed in popular media, whether that's in the magazines or on TV coverage, is the mechanics of it, though. Yeah. Can you give me a 30-second elevator pitch on why we shouldn't prioritize form over the skill of force control, the skill of the perception of the green, I mean, green oh, reading, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, the easiest reason is because there's majority of putts the players are going to hit have multiple solutions to them. They don't have very tight line requirements. There's lots of different places you can hit it and still make it, given you've done some of these other things well, or at least ones that match up with it. Now, straight putts certainly do happen, and those will be difficult, regardless of whatever stroke desire you put together. But uh, they'll be the hardest ones to read because they're generally going to be fairly flat. You're going to often think there's something there when there's not something there, and you have to have to fight the desire to choose an answer when the answer is actually no answer. The mechanics certainly play a role, but they're just, I mean, the thing's not moving very fast. It's not moving all that far. To get a player to do something different, they can usually feel it happening and they can usually adjust. But how does that new movement and new ball start direction affect all the other pieces? That's uh, what really matters most. Is you can, Like working in putting, if you do just one of the pieces by themselves, the other pieces don't stay there. They move around. It's like a Rubik's Cube. 
as soon as you finish the red side, you're like, okay, I got that done. Now I'm going to go to the white side. By the time you get back to the red side, it's all jacked up. Sure. So it's, it's, I think the reason mechanics is talked the most is because it's the easiest to, to take pictures of. And, sure. and, just, and it's like, well, if this is this and this is that. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes sense. It it's makes for easy A-B it makes for, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It makes for easy articles, easy pictures. It's mm-hmm. easy to discuss. Yeah. It's not, it's not putting. It's just a minor piece of it. Yeah, right. In my mind. The importance of underlying principles of successful putting then. I guess if we asked a question another way, you've spent time around some of the best in the world. What are the commonalities that you see from a stroke standpoint? And that would probably lend itself to a good conversation about your preferences that set a player up for greater success for versus less. Uh, that would be form related. And then the, I guess, specificity or when you're looking at players that are excellent in putting, what are the other skill sets that they have? I think the one that stands out for me as the top one is is the clarity of the picture that they produce. Now, because the putting has multiple solutions to it, the clarity piece doesn't necessarily mean it's exactly this line, but it's some very specific intent that they're about to produce. It may not be a very clear picture in terms of it exactly starts here and then exactly rolls over here and then exactly goes in there, but it's a very clear intent of what they're about to try to do then they have some way of connecting that picture to an, to emotion. It's like, if I do this motion, I get this picture. How they make that happen, um, I wish I knew. <laughs> the more I could get people to do that, the better and faster that they get. Some people are just unable to figure out how the motions and the pictures go together, or the picture that they have has been influenced by what their stroke produced so that their stroke actually changes what the picture is. For example, I usually tend to put players in the categories of they either pull it or they push it when they make an error. Depending on whatever their error is, they've had to learn over time to manage and mitigate that error relative to what they see. So now when they look at things that are apparently identical, if their stroke has a bias in it, they now have to look at an identical thing in a different way depending on which way the ball is going to curve. So if they've got a six inch break and they've got a right to left one and left to right one and they always hit a push, on one side they have to read it at eight inches and the other side they have to read it at four but visually to them it's going to look exactly the same. And they've got to figure out some way to manage this visual perceptional piece relative to what their stroke is. Because their stroke is going to drive their picture over time. So it's figuring out kind of how they, how they do that piece. And oddly really enough, most often they feel like they're making the same stroke for right. every situation. Right. But often it's adaptive to the environment. Exactly. Right? That perception. Right. right. And the, the, one of the biggest failures that I made, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here on this part, it was was asking players what their read was. A huge error that I took me a while to, to learn that that was just a really bad question to ask them. What's a better way to ask the same question or get to the piece of information you're looking for then? Where do you want the ball to roll? Because hmm. as soon as you ask them what their read is, it already assumes what their, in their mind, it assumes what their stroke is going to produce. And then what they communicate doesn't necessarily match what they're about to do. When often they communicate what? Six inches out or a cup out or... Right. Et cetera, et cetera. And then they might aim somewhere else and then hit it somewhere else. But what they're doing is exactly correct. Mm-hmm. But they just label it as six inches when it's not. And then I would come along and say, hey, you know, you're actually aiming it at eight and hit it at a 10. <laughs> oh, you, what did I just do with this person? Mess. <laughs> right now, now I've actually made the person worse by telling them the truth. But if I ask them, where does the ball roll? Now we can both speak the same language and it's both open and honest and truthful. I want the ball to be here, then to be here, then like, okay, perfect. Great. However you need to line yourself up to do that, that's fine. Fascinating. And then uh, in terms of how what you've come to understand informs a preference-based system of 
drug mechanics? No, can you, pin, I, I, can you pinpoint I, it? No, it, the, no. I mean, the things that I like when it comes to the stroke is I, 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 there's a subjective evenness that I like to look at. But obviously, a guy like Seneca has been very successful doing it the way that he does it. I would look at that and say, I don't like the way that that looks. But that then challenges me to figure out and understand, well, why does that work? Another one of the big problems that I made early on was taking things that I didn't like and poo-pooing them just because I didn't like them. I got much better as a coach trying to figure out why that worked, even though it didn't make sense to me. If I could figure out why more things worked that I didn't understand, then it just got better in saying, well, that looks stupid, I don't want to do that, we'll just throw that away. That really limited my ability to learn. It actually speaks to a later question, who's good at this and shouldn't be based on your own mental model, your conceptual framework of what you're looking for in a stroke, at least the former you versus the current you. Brand Synthetic is an example of that. And we oftentimes get the question as we're maybe speaking with recreational players, well, how does Billy Mayfair get away with what he does? Or um, any player that has something that, from a form standpoint, blows your mental model out of the way, but from a function is right. perfectly fine to play at a world-class level. In fact, beyond fine, it's fantastic. Right. right. Yeah. It's, 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 do they understand it? Do they know it? Do they own it? Do, does it produce what they need it to produce? Does the ball go where they need it to go at a speed that, they intend. If, if it does those things, then that's our job is to make that happen. That's world-class putting. You just described it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what are a set of action steps that a player out there could and should take to get to that end? I think if they, if they structured their practice with those intents, that there's limited goals that I really have to get done. I have to get it started basically where I want. I have to make it travel a distance that I intend and hopefully choose a target that matches those pieces up. I, I mostly do limited start line, gatey type drill type things. Say, okay, can I make the ball start where I want? Okay, I can do that. Can you give me an example of picture, paint a picture for the listeners? Oh yeah, I like to use a, a short chalk line about six inches to a foot long. Uh, I don't mind using it for an alignment aid, but I don't want to have an elongated one so that when they look out, they see blank. I want them to see grass, not a line and then just a couple tees to frame the ball that the ball's got to roll through. And I would tell them this, okay, this is kind of home base is you check in here every you know, half hour or so, hit four or five putts through this gate, okay, I can do that, move on to the other skills. Check the box on proficiency on start line. Yeah. Right. And then when it comes to the speed and the green reading piece, the green reading piece, I prefer them to draw it out as much as possible, either with ball markers or coins or something. I think the ball will be here, then it'll be here, then it'll be here, then it will go and in. Some of a time-lapse image. Exactly yeah. correct, right. Because it's, it's, I think a lot of players at the level that I see are, are quite good at the last half to last third of where the ball should go. When they struggle, at least the players that I've dealt with, is getting the ball from where they are to where that is. Some either have a conceptual problem of they think it's a straight line and then it curves at the end, or they just haven't really put enough focus on what the beginning part of the putt looks like because it goes so fast, or their head is down and they don't see it some historical reasoning for why they don't get good at it. I think it's mainly the second one that they just don't ever see it because their head's down. Trying to get them a better picture as to, okay, well, if this we know it needs to be here at the end, how do we get it to there? Uh, what alignment, what uh, comfortableness over the ball? It says, okay, if I stand here, I can make that happen, wherever that is. So I, I do a lot of drawing, a lot of pictures. And when it comes to distance control, I usually like to start with uh, either heads up putting or eyes closed or things of that nature and trying to call out what I, what I think I've done. I've been recently toying with the idea of some kind of calibration type stroke 
where a person has one particular motion that, okay, if I do this at home, I get X number of feet, and then I bring it out to the putting green at an event, so okay, now I do this stroke, it now goes whatever distance, further or shorter, and then how quickly can I adapt to something like that. How's that working out? How's that proof of concept, that pilot um, testing going? It's going okay. For, for some people, it's helped quite a bit. For others, it was too, they felt it was too feel-hampering, that it didn't allow for enough uh, fluidity and enough... Um, Coloring outside the lines. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Uh, so some people, they really kind of glommed onto it, similar to like, okay, well, here's my 50-yard swing, my hands go to here, <laughs> club goes, I get 50 yards, it's like, okay, I do this, I get 10, uh, they fit their personality while other people were, eh, it's a little bit too confining for them. Yeah, yeah. I've found lots of effectiveness in what you talked about a couple of minutes ago in teaching force control, you mentioned heads up putting or eyes closed or challenging that skill of perception called error detection. Do yeah. you know what you did even before you look up and receive the feedback? Right. Knowledge of results, knowledge of what error was you versus some other yes. factor. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm, I'm continually amazed at how well a player is at taking this little one foot or two foot blur that goes by and saying, okay, well that's gonna be this or that's gonna be this. Like they know shockingly accurately what that is going to turn into just by what that little itty bitty piece looks right out of the periphery. And you see a dramatic point of differentiation in a person's ability to know what happens without even seeing it from recreational all the way to the oh, yeah. best in the world, yes? Yeah, no yeah. question. Uh -huh. The things that uh, best in the world pick up on that the recreational golfer doesn't even know they're supposed to pick up on is, is astonishing. The things that they feel, the things that they notice, the things they're aware of, they're just, I don't know if more athletic is the right word, but they're, they're gathering so much more info and they're using it much more so than the recreational golfer is. I mean, I've had golfers hit pots in me like, I don't even know what I did there. Where do you feel like that comes from? And it brings up a, a question, which I don't like the question, a great putt is born versus made, because I don't really buy into it's an either or, maybe a little combination of both. There's certainly some uh, traits that, uh, whether it's the vision or perception or proprioception, if you will, that some possess a better capacity for, meaning they've got a greater bank of than mm -hmm. others. But at the same time, I feel like we as coaches can fill up those capacities as well. So what do you feel like those particular traits of being able to be aware of those things come from? I think it's a concentration and a focus level when they're just younger. They just spend more time gathering information while they're doing it than other players do. From a multitude of sources? Exactly right. Their um, experience, other players, conversations. Right. I mean, some, some people just don't have to be told to say, okay, well, if this felt like this, then a softer one has to go shorter. Some people need to be told that. Other people just figure it out. And, yeah. and, when, and when you see it at that difference of a level, because even at the elite level, that, that difference can be quite large, where somebody might have done a lot of focus on a full swing type environment and not so much in a putting environment. And the opposite could be true where now they've done all this focus on a putting environment and those two people talk to each other. They don't even speak the same language. Right. They don't even know what the other person's talking about. <laughs> like one guy's just hitting the ball and just watching it roll. See, you see that, see that, how that rolled different? He goes, what are, you, what are you talking about? It looks exactly the same as the last mm -hmm. one. Um, so there, there's significant differences in, in either a, a choice that they made as younger or just their ability to do it or they've just picked up on conversations from others or watched other pros or something of that nature. Going to that story, uh, speaking with one of the best putters, touch putters in the world that I've been blessed to spend a little bit of time around, says as he was a young player, he would use the ability to watch the other players that he was uh, playing with to enhance his own touch by, as the ball was traveling, predicting 
maybe some 10 or 12 feet before it was going to come to rest, where it would come to rest. And that he felt like that enhanced his ability to then create the same, to use your vernacular, picture for roll speed on any given green. And it, and it struck a chord with me because I, I wasn't necessarily aware of what I was doing when I was doing it, but I certainly <laughs> had played the same game, right. maybe not the same level that he did when I was, right. I was developing my skill as well. Yeah, that's a great, great story. And it doesn't surprise me. I've, I've heard plenty of stories of, of core putters asking better putters, you know, what do you do when you're putting? And they're like, well, I'm just trying to kind of roll the ball over there. And then I just kind of rolled it over there. And uh, see, that one didn't roll right. Let me try that one again. And they just, they're just talking in a different uh, universe and people that are just like stroke mechanics and like okay what do you do with your right hand how hard do you hold it <laughs> like they don't it's not even part of their yeah. thought pattern it's right. just i want the ball to do this yeah it's uh, it's so so interesting very ball driven yeah speaking of practice what's one area you feel like players spend far too much time on what's a time waster in Oh, in developing skill. Uh, in my opinion, it's uh, hammering out start line or making you know 103 footers in a row or, or things of that nature. I, I I don't think it translates that well, especially later on. Maybe early on as they're learning a particular skill. Okay, I, I I get it. But even now they're talking about you know how quickly the half pipe in the grass forms if you're grinding over the same place. I mean it's five ten putts and the and the trough is starting to build mm -hmm. and you almost can't miss it anymore. Right. And then it's uh, error-free practice. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I think most people spend way too much time on some kind of stroke mechanics work or start line work. Or it doesn't have to be perfect. There's the hole is not that tiny. It's more than double the size of the ball. It just has to be good, be good enough. enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. I speak to excellence in golf being precision within a range of predictability. Yeah. I think it's kind of at least similar to those yeah. those lines. Yeah. 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 Uh, so contrast that with an area of practice, and this might be, you could differentiate this based on players, the world-class level versus recreational players. You don't coach much anymore, but you still do some, spend some time with in the area that they don't spend enough time on. For, for me, it's, it's some combination of the quality of the picture and the distance control piece. Okay. Or they don't focus in on when the two don't match up in terms of why was it my read that was more off or was it my distance control that was more off relative to the picture that i made gotcha what would um, be your go-to drill your gold standard task for pairing that did i roll it to the picture that i intended with the pace that i intended to um i i generally use um, a multiple gate kind of picture type thing so there's a couple tees or ball markers near where the ball is maybe a couple inches in front that they've say okay if i roll it through this then there's another gate maybe halfway about the size of the hole if i roll it through that and then some coin or mark somewhere beyond the hole that would equal their total intention for distance. Uh, I usually prefer to do those types of pictures to old holes, like the just the not an actual hole. I want to see the entire picture so they can see, okay, this is where the ball, I thought it would be here, then I thought it would be here, thought it would finish here. How well did I do? Which piece did I get off and why? And as you mentioned, it's the which piece was off and why right. that people don't go through that. Right. Um, that deductive logic, right? Being, yeah, and it's, being I mean, good. it's time-consuming. I get it. It's it, it takes a while to, to read a putt well and say, okay, I think it'll be here, and then I think it'll be here. Then you hit one, and you're, if you're totally wrong, it's like, man, I just spent 10 minutes, and I didn't <laughs> even get close. Like, how do I ever make anything? Right. So it, it, it can almost, and for some people it has. It's actually kind of discouraged them from wanting to practice in a particular way, because if, if you set it up in that format, there's nowhere to hide. 
there's nothing they can really blame if it doesn't go right. It's like, I thought it would do this. It didn't do that. I can't blame it on the wind. I can't blame it on the ball mark. I, it's just, I did that wrong. Some players, understandably, don't care for that knowledge that they just made a mistake. They'd much rather deflect it onto something else and kind of protect their inner belief of their abilities. Yeah, and that brings me to the next question. Where does that confidence come from? Like, it's our job, yes, to enhance yeah. skills, but at the same time, we're also um, carriers yeah. of, of a player's confidence. Yeah. And we can influence that both positively and negatively. No doubt. Um, where does their confidence come from? Where does from? their confidence come from and how do you, what are the knobs and levers to influence that? I don't know where they get their confidence from. I, from what I hear from them, I, they get it different ways. The most prevalent answer that I hear is their confidence comes from uh, success, from the outputs. Right. I, I did what I wanted to do. It wasn't, I did it the way that I wanted to do it. I got the outcome that I wanted. It's outcome driven. My far, far more than process driven. Correct. Yeah. Now when their outcomes aren't good, how do we spend our time in improving the process to make the outcome better without exposing the errors in their process at the same time? I, that's a, still a challenge for me, trying to figure out. Because some people can handle it just fine. And I think this is why when I said what class has to come first, it's the human behavior class. It's understanding this person in front of you. What kind of information can they accept? What kind of information will actually slowly hurt them or slowly help them and avoiding the ones that will hurt and but within the framework, obviously, of still improving the skill. I know I need these outputs to be better. Okay, that's a given. I know you want to make the putt. That's the given. You don't have to try any harder than that. We already know that that's true. Let's and just, we both, coach and player, right, want the same thing, yeah. and caddy and fans. Exactly right. We got, but that's already there. We already know that part. What's the best way to get your output to match in a way that allows you to still stay as much confidence, still train, and then practice and, and transfer that out? That's, it's an ongoing battle for me trying to figure that out. Because even the player themselves will change their comfort level with certain pieces of information where they liked it before. It's like, okay, well, now I don't like this anymore. And they'll just kind of go through this phase of, well, that was really useful, but now I don't like it. Right. Give me something else. That's okay. Well, you got to be ready for a new idea. And then you've got to formulate it in a way that they're willing to accept it and digest it and then work with it. It's, yeah. And it's fun. So working on the outcome, making putts, in what we do in training is one thing until the gun goes off and it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then ultimately hopefully playing close to the lead of not having a lead on Sunday. Is there something unique that you feel like you do to equip your players to better deal with the pressure of having to make, make putts when it counts that would inform some collegiate practice, some amateur practice? I wouldn't necessarily say there's anything specific aside from making it clear to them that the rules are the same and nothing has really changed except for how you work through it. So for me, like the, the pre-shot routine, I kind of picture it as a, as a two-tier system. So there's, there's some part of it that near where the ball is that is always repetitive, how they practice stroke it, how they do whatever. Like this piece, I would say, is a constant. All this other part before that, I'm okay if this varies a little bit depending on the situation. They might read it from a couple different ways, do something a little different based on the situation. So I think this part can change. And then this part would stay the same. So as long as this part is staying the same, the ball. then that's all, that's all they can do. I mean, I haven't yet found a player who's not trying their best. For me, it's important for me to watch them play at that environment, in that level. I still think it's actually who they are, and it's not who I see on the putting green. This is, when the player's competing, this is, what, this is what they do. And the training has to be designed in a way to affect the performance time while they're playing. So if 
they do this one thing particular in practice really well, but then on the course they don't do it. Okay, well then this training isn't transferring over. How do I figure that piece out? Uh, so I, guess I don't think there's anything specific that would separate how I do it from anyone else. It's, well, I would say that the thing I try to get across to them the most is that you don't have to be perfect. It's okay that straight is an answer. I think that's one of the hardest things to sell for me is that you've gone through all this work and you came up with no answer. That's okay. Just play for no answer and hit it straight. That's okay. okay. If you, uh, the other thing, I, th I think some players give a little bit too much power to the green itself and they don't take some of that power for themselves by choosing a speed that makes the ball do what they want it to do. I think a lot of players are too willing to accept, well, the green's going to give me this, so I, I have to accept what the green gives me. Give me an example. I'm not too sure I understand. Are you advocating to take break out? Yeah. yeah. In a, in a situation where a putt's not very long or uh, and they can't find an answer, then make the answer the answer that you want. Make it straight. Hit it a little bit harder, not a lot harder, but enough to give yourself a clear picture as to what. So the, the, the playing less break or hitting it harder will allow them for a clearer picture. I'm going to make the ball do this. Yeah. Instead of saying, well, I can't figure out what it's going to do, so I hope the ball does this. Make it do something. Yeah, and hope is not a good strategy, is it? Hope's not a very good strategy. No. <laughs> Where can people learn more about you? Uh, mostly social media. I, I no longer have a website. Okay, I noticed that. <laughs> yes. So um, Social media handles are? John Graham Golf. You can find me everywhere that way. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, I still have a Facebook presence. I'm not on Facebook all that often. Twitter is still the easiest way to converse with me. I use Instagram, but mainly uh, for like family and other things, not so much golf stuff, but I put some golf stuff on there too. Uh, Twitter is the main way to get a hold of me. Okay, there we go. Check him out on Twitter at John Graham. And we appreciate who you are and what you've offered us today. <laughs> I know you to be an amazing problem solver and you helped to solve some of the problems of the, 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 the playground golf games. <laughs> and this conversation is definitely not over, but it's over for now. So until next time, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.